you've got a Bible or an iPad or some device that's got the Word on, I encourage you to have it open in front of you. And I'm going to uh, read a little bit of Ruth for you. We're going to just do the first five verses, but I'm also going to read the end of the book for you, and I'll explain why we do that as we go along. So, Ruth chapter 1, and let's have a look at the first five verses. Just in case you're not sure where it is, that's the Old Testament. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there for about 10 years, both Marlon and Killian also died. And Naomi was left with her two sons and her husband. It's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Let's go to the end of the book. We'll pick up in Ruth chapter 4. And let me read from verse 13 to 17, and then I'll pray, and we'll take a look at this passage. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman then said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, a grandson. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of King David. Let's pray. Father, we, we begin, a, begin a journey this morning through the, through the book of Ruth, and I, I just ask that the magnificence of who you are in this book and the magnificence of your providence and your care and your love for your people and how you deal with us in all our messy and sinful ways will be of such comfort and encouragement, starting right now, this very moment, in these very first verses of Ruth. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Right, let me give you a, a title if we can get it up there. And I've called it Redeeming Decisions. Redeeming Decisions. So let me ask you a question, and I'm going to ask you to... Well, I'm actually going to ask you to tell me about it after the service. So let's just start with the question, all right? So there it is. Have you ever made dumb decisions that led to unintended consequences which you regret and wish you could take back? Look at that question. Have you ever made dumb decisions that led to unintended consequences which you regret and wish you could take back? Anybody out there? There's a few hands. One of the worst decisions I ever made as a non-Christian led to the unintended consequences of the suicide of a friend of mine. I then became a Christian and continued to make dumb decisions. I then got married. That wasn't a dumb decision. Um, I'm glad Belinda's not here. Um, I then became a Christian. Uh, I then got married and discovered that didn't stop me making dumb decisions. And you can ask my wife all about those. And then I became a pastor. That was a dumb decision. And the dumb decisions just continued to flow. Sometimes the decisions we make are dumb. Some of them are dis disobedient. Some of them are unwise. Some of them are foolish. And more often than not, they hurt us and they hurt others and they hurt the, other, the, the, the people we love. What do you do with disobedient decisions with often unintended consequences? What do you do with them? You know you can't take them back. You know you can never take them back. So what do you do with them? What do you do with dumb, disobedient decisions that you wish you could take back, but you can't? Let's go to the description in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's have a look at the description of the situation. And we're told in verse 1 that it was in the days that the judges ruled. The description is the time of the judges. In other words, what we read, the story that we read in Ruth happened during the time of the judges in Israel. And as Matt helpfully pointed out, to understand what the time of the judges was like, you just need to look a little bit back to the end of the book of Judges and pick up the very last verse of the book, where this is a summary statement of that time, describes the time as in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw in other words, the time of the judges was a time where, where the foolishness of God's people was on display. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. It was a time when Israel operated largely as they thought was best. They operated on sight, not faith, which meant in practice it was a time when God's people they very rarely consulted the will of the Lord. They very rarely went to Him and asked, Lord, what are we to do? What should we do in this situation? They were basically doing their own thing. When we make dumb, disobedient, unwise decisions, we're basically doing things that is right in our, in our own eyes. That's what we do. 
And when that happens, we're not consulting the Lord, are we? When we're doing things right in our own eyes, we're not going to Him. We're not going to Him in prayerful consultation. We're not seeking the Lord's will. And sometimes, oftentimes, we reap unintended consequences that feels like the whirlwind. If you've got your Bible open, notice the description in verse 1. There was a famine in the land. This family, we are told, is from Bethlehem, verse 1. The word Bethlehem means the house of bread. So ironically, there is no bread in the house of bread. And this famine is critical for what follows. Understanding famine in the Old Testament context is crucial because famine in the Old Testament was a sign of God's judgment for His people's unfaithful disobedience. Famines were part of what we call the Old Testament curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And famine was used by God to chasten His people, to, to, bring, to, to bring a discipline upon them. Take a look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 15. This is before the Israelites are to go into the land. He says, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God, do not carefully follow His commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these what? All these curses will come upon you. And, and as they went into the land, what are some of these curses? Here it is. Same chapter, a little bit further down. Moses says, the sky over your head will be bronze. The ground beneath you will become iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will, become, it will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. So just understand that famine in the Old Testament was a, was a, was a consequence for, faith, for, for covenant unfaithfulness. And so with this famine in Ruth, it was, a, it was a chastening time. It was a disciplining time as the bread crumbled and the waters dried up. Have a look at these verses in Psalm 148, verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do His bidding. Do you see that? Famines and natural disasters, they, they, they do God's bidding. They serve His purposes. He uses them to do what He would do. And in this context, this famine was a curse for the disobedience of God's people, for, for God's people doing what was right in their own eyes. So you see the description, don't you? It's a time where God's people are doing what is right in their own eyes. They're under the chastening hand of God who's using it as His bidding agent to bring about a discipline on His people. So from the description, we then go to the decision. So in response to the famine, in this time of a free-for-all in Israel, what, do they, what does this family do? What decision do they make? They decide to relocate. They decide to resettle in the land of Moab, which is about 75 kilometers east of Bethlehem. And I want to explain to you that it's a disobedient decision. What you're about to see is that they decided to make this move because it was right in there 
own eyes. But on the surface, you read it, it doesn't seem all that bad, does it? I mean, there's no bread in the house of bread, so what do you do? You move. You go and find bread somewhere, somewhere else. I mean, Caroline, as you were answering there, if you've got no work in Bustleton, then you move to where? Tasmania, right? Oh, okay. Maybe it's to Perth. I mean, there's no work. There's no pay. There's no pay. There's no food. You look at the whole thing. I mean, and aren't parents supposed to supply and look after their families, right? So why is this decision at best unwise, at worst it was sinful? Elimelech and his family were part of the chosen nation of God. They were part of the covenant community of God's people. They were living in the land that God had chosen for them to live in. In the old covenant, the land was the temporary inheritance for God's people. It was to be God's people living in God's land under God's blessing as they obeyed Him. In other words, this was not a freedom issue. This was not their prerogative to go and live where they wanted to live, even though the going was tough. And we noted, didn't we, that it was a chastening time under the Lord's hand with this famine. This was not the time to go and seek a better life in Moab. With the chastening hand of God, it was a call to, to examine your life. It was a call for them to repent before the Lord, to turn their hearts back to the Lord, to wait for His deliverance, because His deliverance would come. It would come. If you go back into Judges over and over and over, God's deliverance came even when God's people were unfaithful. Elimelech and his family make a decision that clearly violated the Lord's will. And with Elimelech taking his family to Moab, he was removing himself from God's land. He was separating from God's people. And he was separating himself from the promise of God to bless his people, even though it was a tough time. And I think we start to get an idea of how foolish the decision was when you look at this in Deuteronomy 23. Where Moses says to the Israelites before they go into the land, no Ammonite, no Moabite, or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the tenth generation. We also know that the Moabites, they worshipped a god called Shemosh. Shemosh. And Shemosh was a god that demanded that people sacrifice their children to him. And that's what the Moabites did. Elimelech takes his family and he goes to live among a people whom God said, do not mix with them because they would get led away by the paganism of that religious culture. So again, this decision to move was an express violation of an express command from the Lord. It was based purely on circumstantial sight. Now, you and I do not live in the old covenant. We are not bound to a particular place like Israel. The kingdom of God is where? 
It's all over, right? It's all over. Wherever God's people are, are, are gathered, that's where, that's where the, the, the kingdom is. But what this passage does is it asks some very penetrating questions. In the decisions that you make, are you consulting the Lord? Are you seeking God's will in His Word? In the decisions where you have so much freedom, are you consulting the Lord for what He would have you do? We're free to live anywhere in the world, but are we still asking the Lord, where does He want us to be? Where should we be going? What does He want in a particular situation? In the decisions that we make, are we just being purely pragmatic and practical? Are we making decisions that are purely by sight and not by faith? Let's just pull this a little closer to this church at BBC now that we're into this vision series and vision session that we're going into. What decisions as a church are we making that are perhaps purely practical, purely pragmatic, purely based on sight rather than on what the Lord wants. Now, there are many decisions that we need to make as Christians and many decisions we make as a church, but, but there's so much freedom. There's, there's no clear directive very often like this one in Ruth. We're not told exactly who we should marry, where we should live, what job we should take, etc., etc. But the Bible does give us principles by which we are to make decisions decisions I don't know about you but I can make so many decisions without even considering the Lord I don't go to him in prayer I make so many decisions where it's purely what is right in my own eyes what I think is good and right I haven't sought the Lord I haven't sought wisdom from others who know better than myself let me give you an example you have a job. It pays okay. But suddenly another job comes along. It pays more money. Better is best, right? But in order for you to take that job, you've got to go and live up in Exmouth. I mean, no brainer, right? The problem is, what does the Lord want? What's His plan? How does it affect your family? How does it affect your church family? How does it affect the ministries where you're serving? Better is not always best when we consider the wider focus. Let me give you two illustrations which I hope will have the impact on you that it had on me. And these both happened in the last two weeks. Via the website, I uh, uh, was messaged by someone, he might even be on live stream this morning, and uh, someone from New South Wales got hold of me and asked if he could have the permanent live stream link. As is my custom, I followed up with him just to ask who he was, where he's from, why does he want it, and, and, and this is what he said. He said he wanted to see our services, he wanted to listen to the word preached, and this is what he said, and this was fabulous. He said, he was considering moving to Bustleton, but his decision to move to Bustleton would be affected by finding 
a God-honoring church. That's a decision based on faith, not purely on circumstantial sight. Let me give you another one. A couple was down here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were having, having dinner with them, and they were sharing with us around the table how they had recently moved from a big, thriving church in Perth, and they had moved to a small, struggling church in Perth. The struggling church just happened to be a Baptist church, so that's okay. Hey? And, and when, when I asked why they had done that, here's what they said. They said because they believed that they had the gifts and the talents that would aid the struggling church. That is a decision based on faith, not purely on sight. It's very different to people coming to churches today and they look at the church and say, well, we don't have the ministries here that we want. We don't have the age range that we don't. We don't have the youth group. We don't have this. We don't that. So I'm going to go and find another church where all my needs can get serviced. Do you see the difference? There's great freedom, but a very different decision-making process. Better for you and me is not always best. Remember the words of Paul in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The description, the sinful decision. Now let's go to the devastation. Let's go to those unintended consequences. Unwise, foolish, dumb, disobedient decisions often have unintended consequences that you just cannot see at the time. Elimelech, I'm pretty sure, did not anticipate that he was going to stay in Moab for that long, which was 10 years. As you look at the text, here are some of the unintended consequences. Look at verse 3. Elimelech dies. And in verse 4, notice that, that the disobedience to move to Moab then leads to further disobedience because verse 4, their two boys marry whom? Moabite woman, who they were commanded not to marry. And here's what's important. Elimelech, by moving to Moab, he puts his sons in a... It's an un, I don't think he intended this, but he puts his sons in a place of, 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 of great temptation because now surrounded by Moabite women instead of surrounded by a Jewish woman, they marry Moabites. I wonder if you understand that one step of disobedience can so easily lead to, a, lead to another. And it's very often unintended. One leads to another, leads to, to another. I mean, Elimelech, he left the house of bread to go and find bread. He didn't leave to go and find wives for his sons, but... And it starts to get even a little clearer. Have a look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 7 again. Just, just so it's clear. You see it? Moab, uh, Moab. Moses says, 
to, to the Israelites, don't intermarry with them. Not, not just the Moabites, but all the surrounding nations. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. Now please understand that God is not a racist. God doesn't have something against Moabites. In fact, what you're going to see going into the weeks ahead, what God does with a Moabite woman, Ruth is going to blow your socks off. It's mesmerizing. That's next week. It starts. But God's command not to intermingle and intermarry with the nations was a safeguard so that they were not led into religious idolatry. But it continues. Watch this. Look at the next unintended consequences. Elimelech dies and he leaves a what? He leaves a widow. The two sons die and leave what? Another two widows. And here's the unintended consequence. Three widows are left destitute in a foreign land. Now here's what you've got to understand with this culture. In, 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 in Jewish women in the old covenant were completely dependent upon their husbands and their sons for their livelihood. And the death of these three men in a foreign land brought the unintended consequences of three homeless, destitute widows with no income and no support structure whatsoever. Here's the thing. In Israel, this is why they were told to stay in Israel. In Israel, God had set up biblical laws. He'd set up a biblical culture where Israel actually was, was wired, it was structured to care for widows and orphans and the fatherless and the poor. It was structured to help when these things happened. So if this had happened in Israel, both Naomi and her daughters-in-law, it's not to say that Elimelech and the sons wouldn't have died, but if it had happened in Israel, they would have had what? They would have had the support, they would have had the structures around them. They were kinsmen redeemers in Israel. There were male relatives that were set up to help in situations like this. These things didn't happen in Moab. Three widows, destitute, homeless, impoverished. Let me just give you an idea of how God set things up in the Old Covenant to care, to care for situations just like this. Have a look at it. I hope it's coming up in Deuteronomy. One back. Look what God said to his people in Israel. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the, the widow. Do you see the care? Do you see the provision? Take a look at this one. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of of a brother-in-law to her. Now that sounds completely weird to us. I'll explain it to you in weeks to come. But notice what God has done. He has set up structures. He has set up culture. He has set up laws in order to protect the widows, the orphans, the fatherless, just like in this situation. Do you see what, do you see what, do you, do you see what Elimech has done? He's removed himself and the family from God-given Cultural support structures. Now, I'm going to try and give you a modern-day equivalent, but I'm going to say this carefully. Um, I'll try to say it carefully and not take this one too far. 
but I hope it will illustrate the point. For married women today, and it's just an illustration, for married women today who do not work, and when I say do not work, do not work outside the home. There's lots of work in the home, right? For women that are, are, are stay-at-home mums and always been like my wife is one of them. They are completely dependent, aren't they, for the support, for, for bread on the table. If a husband dies without making provision through a, an insurance policy, for example, the family can be completely left what? Destitute. Because the woman has, the wife has been at home her whole life. She's looked after the children. Where are those? You get the point? I hope you realize, Aussies, that I think Australia is the only place in the world that's got Centrelink. So often, and I talked to myself this morning more than anybody, so often we really don't stop long enough to consider the long-term catastrophic consequences that can come when we think that better is best or we only look at things in the here and now. Ponder this. It's sometimes better to stay in the midst of problems than leave in the hopes of promise. Sometimes the safest place to be is in the problems and the most dangerous place to be is where the problems have seemingly gone away. Listen to this quote by Steve Farrow, an author. He said, sin will take you much farther than you ever intended to go. Sin will take you much farther than you ever intended to go. Captain Edward J. Smith was given the honor of doing the maiden voyage of the ship, the Titanic. This gleaming new liner was part of what was known as the prestigious star fleet. Mr. Smith, age 59, he was a senior commander, and he planned to retire in New York when the Titanic had done its maiden voyage. That is as far as he wanted to go. But due to the shipwreck, he went much further than he intended to go. In fact, he went 13,000 feet further to the bottom of the sea. Here's what was said about the Titanic in the post-mortem. Quote, During her single interrupted voyage, one element of misjudgment was added to another in a deadly chain. Warnings went unheeded. Errors in safety standards and navigations were combined to generate the inevitable tragic conclusions. See, Captain Smith headed for retirement. He'd end up in an icy coffin at the bottom of the sea. Shipwrecks will take you farther than you want to go. Sin, foolish decisions, where you have not consulted the Lord and His people, will take you so much further than you ever want to go. Perhaps it would be a very helpful thing, a very painful thing for you to take some time today and think about the devastating 
unintended consequences that some of your decisions have had in your life and on others. Can I encourage you that if you're making some big decisions, even some small ones, that you don't do what is right in your own eyes because it may take you much further than you ever want to go. Which takes me to my fourth point. The redeeming God. I don't know about you. I've had a number of people say to me that they, when you talk about their lives, they say, I have no regrets. I am not one of them. If I could go back and take back the things that I have done, things that I have said, if I could go back and take back the unintended consequences, sometimes devastating consequences, I would take them back in a flash and I live in regret. You think you can't have regret when you've got blood on your hands? So what do you do with them? What do you do with them? What do you do with these foolish, unwise, dumb, disobedient decisions that have often left a wreckage? Especially around the people that you love the most. Did you notice in the first five verses that the main character of the story is not even mentioned? Did you notice that? You know that the name's missing? The book of Ruth does not end in verse 5. And thank God for that. It actually ends at the end of chapter 4. If it ended in verse 5, it would be a pretty depressing picture, wouldn't it? We have to go to the end of the book. And I've told you about the guy who, who, who reads the end of the book uh, just in case he dies while reading somewhere in the middle. And so he knows how things go at the end. I would be very discouraged if it ended in verse 5. So come with me again to Ruth chapter 4, verse 16. And we're just going to touch on this this morning. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a grandson. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. Now you're going to have to wait for future weeks, but let me tell you three big things that happened. And I'll come up on the screen. Number one, despite the circumstances, a devastating famine will give way to a wonderful deliverance for the destitute Naomi and Ruth. What we're about to see is that a Moabite woman, Ruth, she will marry an Israeli family kinsman redeemer. And we're about to see that the son that, 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 that her and Boaz have, he becomes the grandfather of King David through whom the Messiah, King Jesus, will come. Here's what we've got to see. God redeems sin. And God redeems disobedient decisions. God redeems us from the devastating consequences of our decisions. 
we have a redeeming God who is weaving together all the aspects of our lives, even our sin, somehow into a tapestry of His kingdom purposes for His glory and for our good. God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. God will always be faithful because He cannot be unfaithful. Let me put it to you this way. If, if God wove the whole Elimelech mess into the lineage of Messiah, God is weaving all our sin and weaving all our stupid decisions and all our unintended consequences and all our intended consequences. He's weaving the whole lot into some sort of majestic kingdom purpose. And aren't you grateful for that? Let me show you this. Let me show you how God redeems the greatest evil in the highest way. You want to see it? Here it comes. Here is Peter in Acts 2, first sermon at Pentecost. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. There's the providence of God. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. If there was ever unintended consequences in the reverse, there it is, isn't it? In the providence of God, God takes the most despicable human act of crucifying the Son of God and brings about our redemption. If God uses the evil of the cross to bring about the redemption of His people, God will take our foolish decisions and our devastating consequences that come from them. And He will work them for what? He will work them for good. Even when you can't see it. Did Naomi see it at this point in the story? She couldn't see further than her nose. In fact, she was so what? If you read on, she was what? She was bitter. You're going to see a bitter Naomi next week. A very bitter one. So what do we do? Let me start to run this down by giving you this. What do you do with dumb decisions that lead to devastating consequences? One. You lament. You lament. Lament is to just bring your heart broken and contrite before the Lord and acknowledge what you've done. Acknowledge your foolishness. Acknowledge your pride. Acknowledge doing what is right in your own eyes. Thinking you've got it all together. Not seeking His will. Not seeking the wisdom of God's Word or His people. Being foolish. You come and lament. You cry out to the Lord. God, forgive me. For my stupidness, for my, for, for, my, for my failings, for my, for my blind spots, for my just thinking I can do it on my own, as Matt said. Thinking that I can figure this all out. Thinking I can make a wise decision all by myself. We have to lament and we have to own it. We don't blame anybody else, do we? It's our sin. It's our stupidness. It's me being dumb. Lament. 
My decisions and consequences at times want to crush me. But we're not to be crushed by them. Because understand this, people of God, Jesus Christ does not just forgive our sin, He redeems it. He redeems it. It means it doesn't just say what's forgiven, there's no more, no more sort of eternal consequences and you miss the wrath of God. He redeems it. He redeems the stuff. And somehow together He puts it all together in a way that will be ultimately for God's glory and for my good. And I think if we start to understand this, then this verse doesn't just become a band-aid verse on a wound. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, even sin and sinful consequences, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. God does not even leave us to the tyranny of our sinful choices and consequences. He's always forgiving and He's always redeeming. And if you ever want to see, go and read the book of Judges before next week. See how many times God just forgave and forgave and redeemed and redeemed and redeemed and redeemed as the cycle of sinfulness and unfaithfulness just continued in the book of Judges. To see things by faith means... One of the things it means, it means that you believe that God redeems your suffering. He redeems your sin. He redeems the consequences that come from the sin done to you and the sin perpetrated by you. Without faith, Romans 14, 23, it is impossible to please God. I wonder whether now, over tea, if you've got the courage, or at least in our home groups, the starting this week, we might share with each other very openly and very deeply about some of these things. And perhaps some of us have started to see how God has used sinful choices and sinful consequences and brought about so much good in our lives and the lives of others. I think that could be a very rich and deepening experience as we share together in this space. As the team comes up to lead us in our last song, the song is called Our God is a Great God. A great God. How great must you be to use the greatest evil to bring about our redemption? How great must you be? If you can work all things for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Let's stand together.